0: Quick question for you. Are you a federal access member yet? If you're a government contractor, you need a federal access account. You can get started today with a free membership. Just visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Free members get access to about 20 documents and templates, as well as our video training playbooks. More importantly, this gets you in the RSM federal ecosystem and makes you part of our community. So go grab your free account today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now, your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everyone, Mike Lejeune here, and I will be your host today on Game Changers. And as always, we have a great episode for you today. We have one of my favorite guests, Mr. Stephen Coprince, is on with us today from Coprince Law. So I'm just going to dive right in and let you tell people who you are. For if you are in government contracting, you don't know who Stephen Coprints is, you clearly are not doing your research. <laughs> Stephen, you're, you're probably the most widely known person that's out there that I've run into. People know your name the moment I bring it up, or they'll say, "Hey, you know this guy?" And I'm like, "Yeah." There's like three, <laughs> five, four podcasts on him. So kudos to you on on making yourself such a, a household name in government contracting. But for those who don't know who you are, why don't you take a minute, tell people who you are and a little bit about what you do over there.
1: Yeah, fantastic, Michael. Thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure to be be with you. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Steve Coprince, uh, managing partner of a boutique law firm. We're nine attorneys. Uh, we work exclusively in federal government contracts law, and so uh, what we do is we assist uh government contractors with pretty much any legal aspect of their of their business uh be that uh bid protest claims appeals subcontracts teaming agreements mentor protege agreements plain old compliance and we have a lot of folks who just want to know what the law is what can they do and can't they do because it's a complicated field so if it's a government contracting legal issue we can probably help you we work with uh companies Coast to coast, uh, not limited to any geographical area. By the same token, if it's not a government contracting issue, you get pulled over uh, driving home. Don't call me. We don't. We don't do anything but federal yeah. government contracts law.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. It, I, I love how you you plug that at the end because. And you're probably the first person that's done it that way. I always tell people, you know, when you are in government contracting and you need an attorney, the person that's worked on your will or any of that stuff is not the person to talk to. That's, in fact, the person to take your tickets or whatever stuff to, you know, not... You know, you just don't take government contracting. You need an expert like Steven. Uh, So if this is the first time you've listened to Game Changers, you will hear me say that over and over and over again. You need a specialist in this field that is that important. You you often have thousands, if not millions, or multi-millions of dollars on the line. So having the right expert that you can talk to is super important. And Steven is one of those folks who is, you know, one of our trusted experts that we refer to on stuff like this. So uh, always a pleasure. To have you on here, sir. Um, you know, we were talking before this show, and we've kind of been talking, you know, back and forth here and there. And there, there's a lot of changes going on in the subcontracting world, and I think that's where we wanted to focus a little bit today is talking a little bit about what some of those changes are in the subcontracting world and what that means for you know the person who's listening today that's a government contractor so why don't i throw it over to you and let you kind of tell us a little bit about what some of those changes are and what the impacts on uh government contractors are
1: yeah absolutely you know, this is uh kind of an ongoing shift um and you know one of the reasons my colleagues and i have jobs is because the law is never static in this field um but what we're really talking about is is what's called limitations on subcontracting. And that's that's a set of rules that applies when the government has issued a contract or a solicitation that's going to be set aside for some category of small business. It could be just plain old small business set aside, could be eight A hubs zone, woman owned, service disabled, uh all those subcategories of small businesses. And when you have one of those types of contracts in place then the government doesn't want the prime contractor to be what we all call a pass through. In other words, the public purpose of having these types of contracts, these types of set asides, is to help grow the capacity of businesses that have a certain profile, be it a small business, woman owned, et cetera. It's not for a business to essentially sell its status by uh winning a contract, taking a cut off the top, and then just passing all the work through to a large business or someone who wouldn't have been eligible. Uh, for that contract, and so the, the law has long required, pretty much as long as they have been set aside contracts, there has been a uh, <clears throat> kind of a twofold policy on this. One is that the prime contractor or someone perhaps with that status—I'll so get into that in a moment—has to perform a certain percentage of the work because, after all, that, that that's what prevents the pass-through. But by the same token, we don't want to prohibit these companies from subcontracting at all because that's not really realistic from a business perspective, in a lot of cases uh getting a project done requires more than one company, more than one discipline. You think about a construction project, the general contractor is usually not doing all the trades work. They're going to hire out uh the HVAC, they're gonna hire out the electrical, so on and so forth. And so there have been these uh policies called limitations on subcontracting uh, that have were implemented in the Small Business Act, which is the statute. That's the statute that Congress passes and then interpreted by the agencies. The agencies uh, being two two well several, but two entities that have written regulations to interpret and apply the statutory limitation on subcontracting. One's the SBA, Small Business Administration, which has primary authority over the Small Business Act, and it's written a set of rules uh about how much the Prime can subcontract uh on a set aside contract, and then the FAR Council, which is composed of Representatives of the DoD, GSA, and NASA, which is also written rules that go and those are the actual clauses that you see in the in prime contracts, most notably FAR 52.209.14, which is the, the limitation on subcontracting clause for small business set aside. So that, that's kind of the backdrop of it, why we have these rules, why they're there. The changes that we're talking about uh, stem from a statutory change in 2013, because the, the rules. That were written in the statute say, here's how much can be subcontracted, here's how you calculate it, here's whose work counts and doesn't count. And in 2013, Congress went in and monkeyed with the statute. 2013, National Defense Authorization Act. And Congress changed the formulas for how you calculate uh, compliance with the limitation on subcontracting, and Congress changed whose work counts <laughs> toward limitations on subcontracting. And so we'll, we can get into all this in more detail. Uh, but that's that's kind of the impetus for this because following that change, the statute said one thing, the regulations now said something else. In 2016, the SBA changed their regulations to implement the statute. So now the statute says one thing, the SBA regulation agrees with the statute. The FAR still doesn't agree with the statute, and so now you've got contractors who are saying, "What the heck do I do? I've got two sets of rules. Which one do I comply with?" And so the changes that have c- occurred most recently. And finally, December of 2018, the FAR Council has adopted, uh, a, or at least has put forward a proposed rule to conform the FAR now to both the SBA and statute to, f- to clean up this problem of multiple formulas, et cetera, et cetera, Keep in mind it's a proposed rule, it's not a final rule. The DOD has gone a step further and has issued an immediate deviation from the FAR, essentially conforming DOD limitations on subcontracting to the SBA and statute effective immediately. <laughs> so it's a it's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo out there but it's important because I've had so many clients and and others, you know, people I meet at conferences and such who all they want to do is comply but they don't know what the answer is, which rule do I comply with? They want me to give them a definitive answer and I haven't been able to give them one. <laughs> you know, after all these years out there. Now they're finally going to have one I think some point in 2019 on the DoD side they they pretty much already do.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess if if I was one of these clients in this boat, the bottom line question I would probably have for you is, did they increase the percentage or de- decrease the percentage? So if, if, if I am the prime, can I, you know, how much of this can I sub out? Or if I am... You know the 8A or whatever. How much can I sub out? You know, did that go up or down? You know, in variations of that question. So maybe you can address that a little bit.
1: Yeah, gr- great question. The answer is the the percentages stayed the same, but the formulas used to get to the percentages different uh, changed, as well as whose work counts. So let me explain kind of how how that works. So there are uh, essentially three different percentages that can be used based on how the the contract is classified and it can be classified for purposes of these rules in four kind of broad categories one is services Uh, second is manufacturing which covers products the acquisition of products the third is general construction and the fourth is specialty trade construction your HVAC contractors and folks like that and so for services and manufacturing The the limit has long been 50%. Manufacturing has a separate way of getting there called non-manufacturer rule, which we won't get into here, I don't think. But it's been 50% on that side. For general construction, the self-performance requirement is 15%, which means subbing up to 85%, keeping in mind the general contractors usually do the management of the job and the oversight of the job, but often sub out. Allow the actual construction work, especially trade 25% self-performance up to 75% uh, subcontracting. But the question then, and what was changed in, in the statute, they didn't change those numbers, which are still 50, 15, and 25. Um, but what they changed was how you get there, especially on the services side. So on the services side, the old statute and the current FAR, if you still look at FAR 52.219.14, says. That the limit is determined by looking at 50 percent of the cost of the contract incurred for personnel. That's that's the phrase that it uses. And so, 50 percent of what is the question? 50 percent of right. what? And so, on, under the stat, the old statute, the old SBA regulation, and still the current FAR that's being proposed to be amended, it's 50 percent of personnel costs, which the FAR unhelpfully doesn't tell you what that means. But the old SBA regulations. Uh, due, and they said it was essentially your direct labor plus indirect costs associated with that, essentially a fully loaded labor rate minus the profit. And so that, that's basically what it was. Other costs would be the materials, profit, you know, other, other parts uh, of the contractor's um, bid just aren't counted. So it's personnel costs. Now, there are a couple problems with that. Number one, of course, like I said, the FAR didn't even tell you what that meant, so you had to hunt around the SBA regulations to get a definition. But the practical problem was that when you sit back and think about it, to determine if you, the prime contractor, are keeping 50% of the personnel costs, what information do you need to have? Well, you need to have a full breakdown of your own cost proposal. You need to know how all your costs are being allocated. But you also need that information about your subcontractor or all your, multi- or your, all your subcontractors if you've got multiple subs. And, you know, the fact is that a lot of subs, especially in fixed price settings, they ain't going to give you that. <laughs> They're going to say, right. no, thank you. You know, I'm giving you a lump sum quote. My quote is a million dollars. I don't want to tell you my cost breakdown because I think it's proprietary. And also you're going to know how much profit I'm charging on this job. Right. And so the, so the prime is often in a tough spot because they are, they are pledging to comply with a formula that they don't have enough information to know whether they're in compliance. The same, by the way, is true on the government side when it comes to auditing and determining whether the relationship is compliant. Because again, think about the fixed price setting, in the cost reimbursement setting. Everybody's probably got this information, at least on the government side. But in the fixed price setting, which of course is a preference for contracts, that they be fixed price, then the government probably doesn't have that information either. If they ask just for a lump sum fixed price type proposal, they have no idea who's incurring what kind of costs and wouldn't know unless they actually went and did an audit. Which you know makes it much more difficult for the government uh, to determine whether there's compliance. And so what the, the uh, statute did is it changed the formula from 50 percent of personnel costs to 50 percent of amount paid. Simple. Mm. that's what a lot of people thought it was all along. It wasn't, but now it is. And so the formula every, it's easy for everyone to figure out. The government pays you a million dollars, you can sum contract up to, to half a million. 50 percent. In 50% out doesn't matter whether it's for materials, whether it's for labor, whether it's for profit. It's just dollars in versus dollars out, and that's a very easy way for everybody to determine uh, compliance. So that's that's a change on the on the the service aside from cost of contract incurred for personnel to amount paid by the government. And some similar tweaks were made to manufacturing and construction. Those those tweaks perhaps not quite as um, overwhelming as they they are on the services side, especially because in construction they still allow you to back out the cost of materials. Um, but it's still it's, the movement now is to instead of some sort of internal cost measure, it's the amount paid by the government, and that's that's mm-hmm. the overall metric making it easier for everyone to comply. The second thing that Congress did, that the SBA now has done, which is is really a beneficial for small businesses, is SBA. Or Congress said, <clears throat> "Look, you know the, the rule says the, that the prime contractor must incur 50% of the cost of personnel with its own forces. But w- w- you know the purpose of the policy is not to necessarily ensure that this particular prime contractor grows and develops, but to ensure that small businesses uh, receive 50% of the dollars, or 8A, if that's you know 8A's receive 50% of the dollars if it's that kind of contract." So why, if this small prime contractor subcontracts to another small business, or if this 8a prime contractor subcontracts to another 8a, why is that counted against them? It should be counted for them, right? I mean, isn't it better to let them? And right. so, what Congress did is they adopted a formula called similarly situated entity, and the idea being, you know, somewhat simplified here that if you're an 8a company, for example, it's an 8a set aside contract, and you've got a 50 percent performance metric. You can get there by doing 50% yourself or 100% if that's your thing, but how about 30% yourself, 20% to another 8A and 50% to a large business? And that's mm-hmm. compliant under the similarly situated entity rule because the work performed by your 8A subcontractor, a similarly situated entity, counts for you rather than against you. And so that that similarly situated entity gives gives companies small primes a lot more flexibility perhaps to go after projects where they wouldn't necessarily have the capacity resources et cetera to get to fifty percent if that's their number of fifteen percent of the large general construction project but by teaming with someone else with the same size and socioeconomic status they they can get there and that that has been codified again by congress uh, back in twenty thirteen uh, now it's in the sba regulations FAR council finally has proposed to get you there but they have not and dod has implemented by class deviation so eventually we're going to get there. But that's been one of those issues where folks have come to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm working on a job. It's got a, you know, FAR 52.219.14 is in there, which is the standard limitation on subcontracting clause. It tells me that I, as the prime contractor, must myself get to 50%. Can I rely on similarly situated entity? And the answer, unfortunately, is I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're, you may have a, a legal right to do it, but your contract says something else. You may still have a contractual obligation to do something else. So I'd be really, really careful about doing something your contract says you can't do, even though you have a, a, a law kind of backing you up on the, on the back end. So similar situation, Andy, uh, the second major piece of this change and, and a really good change for small businesses, and that is uh, where we're heading now for everybody finally moving forward with some clarification that everyone will be able to use it.
0: Yeah, it, it's kind of wild just listening to you. I'm like, wow, they not only did something that makes sense. So that kind of throws you off right, right out of the gate. It, it sounds like they made it easier. To understand, you know, it makes sense and it's easier. Those two things don't necessarily go together very often, uh, you know, when you think of government contracts, paperwork, things like that. And so it, it sounds like that's one of the things that came out of this. Now, here's a, a question I have because I, I think, again, I'm always trying to ask the questions that I think our listeners are asking. Suppose I uh, I don't have another 8A. So let's say I'm an 8A, but I have uh, a company that we like to work with that's an SDVOSB. And I'm actually going to perform 50% of the work. They're going to perform 30%, 40% of the work. Does the government get the credit for the 8A and the SDVOSB, Or do they just get, hey, this is an 8A contract. We're only getting credit for that. 8A, because I, I assume that's one of the things that if you're a small business you're trying to push to say hey this is a, another reason a differentiator why you should choose us is you know we're not only an 8A one of our main subs is an SDVOSB and so this is going to give you you know more credit than you're thinking to you know towards your metrics you know Mr Miss Government you know you know contracting officer what what are the thoughts on that one.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question, and, and generally speaking, it's kind of more of the former than the latter. In other words, more that the government's only going to be taking credit for the prime's uh, status. So the government, <clears throat> working through the SBA, each federal agency has to keep track of a number of small business metrics throughout the years. or are dollar-based, typically, but it's about you know what, what percentage of contracts or what percentage of dollars go to small businesses, what go to 8As, what go to service-disabled, so on and so forth and then they get a report card from SBA every year with some letter grade uh, assigned to it about how well they did on meeting their their goals the government wide goal for example for uh, small businesses is 23 percent for service disabled veteran owned small business 3 percent and women owned five so so those are the those are going metrics the, the government toward those prime contract metrics can only take credit for the uh dollars go to the prime contractor. And so if the prime contractor's eight A, government gets its eight A credit or really what the Golden Card still calls small disadvantaged business or S D B credit, it also gets small business credit because any eight A is also a, a small business. Right. Uh, but it wouldn't get credit for the work, at least not at that level, toward the work that's performed by the, the subcontractor. Now the agencies are also supposed to keep track of dollars at the subcontracting tier usually more in connection with their unrestricted acquisitions and the subcontracting plans that are being implemented by their large primes we are are expected to do that if the contract is 8A set aside the sub is SDVSB you know probably not going to get you very far in the grand scheme of things there are exceptions to everything for example the VA with its you know well known preferences both statutory and otherwise for service disabled will sometimes Throw in evaluation credit for using dBSb subs and things like that so it, it can it can pop up but that would be the more likely scenario where that would be a, a factor
0: so it could it could possibly be a differentiator it just may not help the government with their scorecard now let let's kind of go back to the similar situated entity for a moment now let's let's assume. I'm 8A, I'm doing 50% of the work, my main sub is also 8A, and they're going to do the other 50% of the work, I assume based on the explanation you gave, the government's going to get 8A credit for 100% of this contractor.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and and they would... uh be able to get that sort of credit anyway it's kind of weird how this, this works but the credits based on the dollars awarded to the prime they don't then go back at least for goaling purposes they don't go then go back and subtract the dollars that went out to subs that didn't have that status but yet yeah, it is now technically considered a kind of hundred percent 8 a performance contract at, at this point in time although again I think the government would get the same amount of 8 uh, a credit toward its goals even if the the sub was Boeing or
0: something. Yeah. And and the reason I asked that is I, I thought that was the answer. Number one, I wanted to confirm that. And number two, I have seen people believe that that wasn't true. That, hey, if I'm only doing 50% of the work and I sub to one of the big folks like Boeing or, or whoever it is, they're only going to get 50% of the credit that they should because only 50% of the dollars are being spent with me technically if you will and so that way we can sort of dispel a myth there that will help you know with with folks as they're thinking through that so anyway that, yeah that's a really good
1: one. it's good to think of it as kind of award dollars you know how, how many dollars were awarded to this this company rather than at the end of the day how many were retained by that company versus how many were subbed to somebody else
0: yeah so would you say that there are any um Uh, like tricks or hurdles that you see based on this change that that may trip people up that they were used to doing it one way and now with the differences or i mean it sounds like it's just so much easier now but i'm just curious if if there's any common mistakes or hurdles that you see people uh like i said pitfalls whatever that they may get sucked into because they're used to the old way
1: yeah I mean, there are a couple things there. I mean, I think overall that it's a positive change for the reasons we've talked about. I mean, I think similarly situated entity, no matter how you slice it is positive for small businesses. um the the form of the change, I think by and large is positive as well. Now, I have talked to folks in certain industries where that change has been problematic. For example, you know i won't I won't name anyone by name here, but there are there are industries in which, Set aside contracts have gone out, and a large percentage of the dollars are for, you know, let's say a manufactured product, for example, and only a small percentage of the dollars are for the the servicing of it. But by getting to 50% of the, the personnel cost to service that product after it's installed, let's say you're installing a, you know, <clears throat> a computer system or something like that, and then you provide the technicians for five years afterwards then some folks may say, well, wait a second. (laughs) You know, I I used to be able to get to 50% on these contracts because I was going 50% of my technicians' costs, and then I could buy the system from Dell, and it wasn't a problem. But now if I buy the system from Dell, that's a problem because it's total cost. And so I think one thing for folks to look at, and this is really because the SBA, for most industries, and there's still potentially some that fall in the cracks, but for most industries, the SBA kind of has answered that question by, By directing the contracting officer to to classify the acquisition, typically by the type of, uh, by the portion of the acquisition, I guess it's going to be the largest. And so in that case, the SBA would likely say, look, contracting officer, you shouldn't call that a services contract that's subject to the 50% services limit. Anyway, you should call it a manufactured product contract is subject to that limit that may be a different way to, to get there. Now you're a non manufacturer or something like that. So but one thing to look out for is how are contracting officers classifying these acquisitions and does the classification somehow not fit with your ability to comply. And I've seen that only in a handful of cases, but I've seen it. I think the second one that i s I've seen and I'm going to see a lot more of as the FAR adopts a similarly situated entity concept is the uh <clears throat> the question about who who counts as a similar situated entity is not quite as clean as it seems on its face because the, there are two components to it. First of all, the, the subcontractor has to have the same socioeconomic status that's required by the prime contract. That's easy enough. It's an 8A prime contract. This, the uh, company has to be 8A, HUBZone, HUBZone, so on and so forth. But the second piece is that the subcontractor has to be a small business under the NAICS code the prime assigns to the subcontract and that's the part that blows people's minds is that there's a size component and it's not the case that the size is necessarily dictated by whatever size standards on the prime contract so for example let's say you've got a a general construction contract NAICS code 236220 for example is a general construction code 36 and a half million dollar size standard let's say that contract's at a set aside for 8A. Let's say that you would now want to subcontract the HVAC work to an 8A company. All right, <clears throat> so let's say that a $20 million HVAC company approaches you and they're, they're 8A. Is that company a similarly situated entity? Probably not, because even though they're well under the, the 36.5 million size down on the prime contract, you as the prime are required to assign your subcontractor a NAICS code that best fits their work and the NAICS code that best fits the subcontractors work is the HVAC code and that contains a $15 million size standard and these guys ain't small under a $15 million size standard so I've, I've had to work with some clients about making sure number one that they are in fact assigning NAICS codes and size standards to their subcontractors which most people don't do by the way but in order to count someone as a similarly situated entity you have to have them certify that they're small under a certain NAICS code and size standard so that you can then go back to the government and say yeah I appropriately counted them this way and second to make sure that they understand that the NAICS code sub, uh, that goes on the subcontract is, may or may not be the one that's on the prime contract it might be <laughs> they might, everybody might be doing the same work or it might not be and we gotta figure out then if it's not the same NAICS code which code is it and is the size standard higher or lower and then have the subcontractor certify as small under that code so it can be, get a little bit complicated on the paperwork side when trying to take advantage of similarly situated entity because of that particular uh, quirk there
0: yeah I, i'm really glad you brought that up because uh the the word that kept going through my mind is paperwork mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if i am going to approach a contract like this and i know i need mm-hmm. that similar situated entity to to be involved in this what paperwork do i need what documentation do i need as i go to submit this contract is it, a, is it a form is it part of my teaming agreement you know where where do we need to define this so that i have got all those ducks in a row for the government
1: yeah and it's it's interesting cuz the SBA when they were drafting these rules essentially proposed a mandatory written teaming agreement. They didn't use the word teaming agreement, but that's what they essentially proposed. And then they backed off that in the final rule and said, well, that might be too too burdensome on folks, so we're not going to mandate a teaming agreement, but you still got to essentially be able to show that your subcontractor meets, meets the standard. And so the agencies, in some cases, are going to ask for this information. I increasingly see agencies, as part of the proposal process, asking for written teaming agreements so they can be sure that the subcontractors in question are, are even committed to this project. Um, but even if the agency doesn't ask for it, I think that in order to be able to, in good faith, self-certify that you are going to and are complying with the limitation on subcontracting, you need, at a bare minimum, the subcontractor, in this case, prospective subcontractor, to certify in writing as to whether they are or are not uh, small under the appropriate NAICS code and size standard that's going to be on their subcontract, uh, and if it's a type of uh, of certification that's a self-certify for socio-economic, such as currently woman-owned uh, and served disabled on the non-VA side, then they should be self-certifying that. That that allows you now, as the because as the prime, you're making representations and certifications to the government. And one of them is that you're going to hit fifty percent, for example, if that's your metric. You need to have the backup documentation so that if the government asks, well, how did you how did you come to believe that these guys counted, that you have something to support it? Now, you could just do it as a sign the certification and we're done, send me an email even, or potentially even just you know affirm that the information in your SAM is up to date if the SAM has that if they're in SAM and have that type of information. I, I think the best practice though is to get a teaming agreement that assigns a NAICS code that says this NAICS code is going to be on your your subcontract, this is the size turned on it, you hereby represent and certify that you are, you know, 8A and small under this size standard, and, you know, you'll give us your firstborn child if this is wrong, and, you know, all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, no, that's perfect, because, again, I, I think there's a lot of people that, can grasp the concept fairly easily from us explaining it, but kind of pointing them in a direction on some paperwork, uh, documentation, however you want to put it, I think is a, is a really important factor mm-hmm. there. Is it, that is one of the challenges we see a lot of times with our clients is they can understand a concept, but actually executing on it is is where the challenge is. And again, that's why we bring experts like Stephen Coprints on here to talk to all of you that are listening today. So you know if you, you come across this, you know who to pick up the phone and call. And so... Thank you for coming on today and talking about all this. Any final thoughts on this change and how it impacts folks before we get out of here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one that, unfortunately, even though it's five, six years in, it's one that contractors should should still be – keeping an eye on trade publications on the the news our blog i'll plug it smallgovcon.com has this information on there to see where this is in the process because right now we are still although we're, we're a lot closer to a resolution we are still in a place where uh, it may not be clear to you which set of rules applies on limitation on subcontracting. Is it the outdated cost of the contract that incurred by personnel formula? Is it the new contract? If you've got an existing contract, you're probably still going to be under the old rules instead of the new unless someone retroactively changes it. So it, it, in fact, even on the, the VA side, interestingly, the VA has been doing some audits of some of our clients and presumably of others. For compliance with limitation on subcontracting, and the VA has approached some people and literally said, "Well, I mean, this is not a direct quote, but the the gist is, you choose which formula you'd like us to evaluate you under. The older, the new. You know, essentially implying we have no idea ourselves which applies to this contract. So (laughs) That's so, that's where we are. We're still there. I think by the time the calendar turns to 2020, at least with respect to new." contracts, we should all be in the same place. It'll be the new rules, the new formula, the similarly situated entity, etc. But I wouldn't want anyone to take away from this that, if they're listening to this here in in early 2019, that that absolutely def- definitely applies to their contract as it is right now. We are still in a state of flux. It's maybe the end of the state of flux is coming soon, but we're we're still fluxing. It's that's a verb.
0: Yeah, yeah, there you go. And it, it's just the way the government works, you know. They may solve this next month. They may not solve it for 3 years. We don't we don't really know and it'll happen when it happens. Now, you you plug the blog there, I get your newsletter, and so I assume if they get on there, they'll find a way to subscribe to the newsletter and then it'll come right to their inbox to their when inbox. this happens because I'm sure you're gonna write up something uh, whenever this happens and that way you know that'll make sure they you know people get notified too right
1: absolutely and yeah I mean please go to our blog smallgovcon.com but you don't need to keep going there every day if you're you're too busy uh, to, to check a blog daily or something like that we do have the, the newsletter out there we got thousands of people signed up for it it's free you know uh, you don't have to be a client or anything like that if you give us your email address we send that to you usually the last business day of the month. It hits maybe six, seven, eight of the, the top stories that we've been following that month, not everything that was on our blog, but a lot of the top, top posts. And, of course, if and when, and there will be at some point, developments happen in this field, that's always going to be among our top six, seven, eight posts. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll, you'll be up to speed as this moves along.
0: Yeah. There's always good stuff in there. I mean, I always click through and read them and, uh, it's just, it's good to know stuff because what you don't know can come back to really hurt you, especially in, in government contracting. So thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this. It's always, you know, great to hear all the wisdom that you have in these areas. And, uh, we just really appreciate you taking the time out and kind of pouring that wisdom out to our listeners again.
1: Well, thanks Mike. Appreciate it. It's always, always an honor to be part of your series and, uh, Look forward to coming back again sometime soon.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Before we take off today, I want to ask everyone a simple question. Are you feeling stuck in your government business? Do you feel like you should be winning a lot more contracts, but just can't figure out how to bust through to the next level? Do you want to accelerate your results and hit your goals faster? Does that describe you at all? If so, I have a very special offer for all of our listeners today. Visit us at rsmfederal.com slash coaching, where you can schedule your very own business breakthrough session with me. You're going to walk away from the session with three things, a copy of the award-winning government sales manual at least three strategies to supercharge your business and some specific answers to your biggest challenges that are out there. Now, normally these sessions run about $495, but for a limited time for our podcast listeners only, you can schedule this session at no cost to you. So that's zero cost to schedule a session with me. Simply visit rsmfederal.com forward slash breakthrough coaching. And you'll be able to fill out an application. So scroll all the way to the bottom of that page, fill out an application that'll come directly to me, then I'll reach out to you. We'll get our, our session scheduled and we'll walk through some of the challenges that you're having, whether it's you know, how to grow the business, your goal setting, um, specific challenges you're having in government. This doesn't have to be just about specific to growing any business, but you're gonna walk away from the session not only understanding How to approach the government from a better perspective, but you're going to walk away with a lot of confidence on what you need to do, what next steps you need to take to supercharge your government business so you can take the next several months, the next several years to a whole new level. So, again, visit us at rsmfederal.com forward slash breakthrough coaching. You can uh, get an overview of what Breakthrough Coaching is all about. Scroll all the way to the bottom. Fill out the application. That'll come to me, and then I'll schedule your session for you. And last but not least, let me take a moment here. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. We really appreciate your support. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. And be sure to tune in next time for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com/slash-game-changers.